Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Seized oil tankers, drones knocked down out of the air, and constant threats of retaliation. That sums up the current state of affairs between the U.S. and Iran. Each time there's a new escalatory move by the other side, the world holds its breath, only to slowly exhale as both sides resist turning the tensions hot. Joining the crisis next door once again is Colin Clark, senior research fellow with the Sufan Center and author of After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Terrorist Diaspora. Colin, good to have you back on The Crisis Next Door. Thanks for having me. The UK says it's assembling a European-led maritime protection mission for ships in the Strait of Hormuz after Iran seized the British flag Stina Impero in what Tehran says is retaliation for the British seizure of an Iranian tanker two weeks earlier. Is this Britain's best option at this point, and how effective do you think that maritime protection force will be? Yeah, well, it's certainly symbolic, right, because it's bringing in other countries and, and to uh, show the Iranians that this isn't something just between the U.S. and Iran or just between the U.K. and Iran, that this is uh, that there's a kind of Western front, if you will, uh, that won't allow these shipping lanes to uh, to, to be jammed up uh, or for the Iranians to essentially kind of commandeer other tankers. Um, I, I think it's probably the appropriate uh, response as we're kind of locked in this tit-for-tat uh, escalation at the moment. And so uh, the, the concern is kind of overreacting uh, and, and engendering some kind of more kinetic action. So this is probably uh, the appropriate baby step, if you will. Each time one of these escalatory actions takes place, we, we kind of keep expecting perhaps an overreaction. Are you surprised that the U.S. and its allies have held back so far in, in a more kinetic reaction to Iran? Well, in some ways I am, um, but in other ways, I think the Iranians uh, know quite well how to walk up to the line uh, without actually stepping over it. It's something we talked about um, at length in our, our recent uh, research paper uh, from the Sufan Center called Iran's Playbook, Deconstructing Tehran's Regional Strategy. Uh, it doesn't behoove the Iranians to go to war to come to blows with the U.S. because, frankly, they don't stand a chance. And while they could make it very painful for the United States, uh, the regime doesn't stand to benefit from provoking some kind of broader confrontation uh, that may play well domestically for a little while. But in the end, it's it's likely to uh, to, to bring a lot of criticism on the, the current regime. What is Iran's grand strategy in all of this? Well, it, it's it's a grand strategy, but that grand strategy is, is a regional strategy. Right. So it's kind of uh, a battle for hegemony within the Middle East, within the Persian Gulf. Um, it's at odds with the Saudis, right? And so Iran is the Shia vanguard, uh, representing, uh, you know, a, a constellation of countries and attempting to increase territory and uh, increase resources. We've seen uh, what the Iranians have done in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, and elsewhere. And so this is kind of a continuation of that. Um, and, and again, they, they'd like to maximize benefits 
uh, w without actually going over that line and kind of, um, you know, bringing about some kind of uh, broader shooting war. You mentioned these proxy networks that Iran has built up across the Middle East from Hezbollah in Lebanon to Shia groups in Iraq and the Houthis in Yemen. How critical are those groups in Iran's strategy in dealing with the West? I think one thing I would caution is that we can't look at Iran's foreign policy strictly through the lens of terrorism. It goes far beyond that. Um, the Iranians have used uh, an array of tactics, including soft power and various economic support structures to further their aims. Um, and so it would be short-sighted and, and quite myopic just to look at Iran through the lens of, of state-sponsored terrorism. That said, these networks are extremely important, I think not only for uh, what they've done so far, but for what they represent, the potential that they represent. Um, you know, because if and when Syria ends, what does Iran do with these legions of, of foreign fighter networks that they've now been cultivating, right? These kind of become a, a tool for extending uh, power throughout the region um, and, you know, kind of having that plausible deniability. Uh, some, some would refer to it as measures just short of war. Um, you know, that, that also carries its own risks. Um, you know, we've seen some of the more hawkish elements of the Trump administration calling for a more forceful response. Trump has yet to, to go down that path. Um, but, you know, it only takes one of these incidents to be misinterpreted uh, or, or to be, um, you know, for, for the U.S. to perhaps think that it's it's the proper context to teach Iran a lesson, uh, so to speak, and, and to move in a, in a more connected manner. The U.K.'s Telegraph reports that U.K. intelligence indicates that Iran is poised to launch terror attacks across Europe using Hezbollah-linked sleeper cells. We tend to think of Hezbollah's presence in Lebanon and Syria how serious of a presence does the group have in Europe? Yeah, so it, it completely maintains a global footprint, uh, as Matt Levitt, author of a book on Hezbollah, has pointed out. Um, and I think they're stronger in, in some areas than, than others. Um, there's also a kind of division of labor where there's a focus on propaganda, uh, on financing or fundraising. Um, I think, you know, the potential for Hezbollah to launch terrorist attacks anywhere in the world is, look, it's certainly a possibility, you know, but but it's a serious escalation. I mean, that's a major risk um, on, on the side of the Iranians to, to to go down that path because once you uh, once you choose to, to to do that, I think you know um, the consequences are severe. Obviously, Hezbollah would be looked as a potential blocker against Israel in any potential war with Iran. How much can Tehran count on these groups? to do what it needs to do at the critical moment. Uh, will those groups go lockstep with Tehran's orders, or could there be concerns that they may not decide to go that route? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think ultimately it's unknowable, right? Because I think there are different elements or um, different variations of command and control between the Iranians and between other groups. Another big question is asymmetric capabilities, such as cyber warfare. Do we know the capabilities that Tehran has when it comes to cyber warfare, are they on the same level yet as the Russians or Chinese or North Koreans? So certainly not on the same level as uh, Moscow or, or Beijing. But again, that, you know, still a highly capable actor uh, from uh, from a nation state perspective. Uh, they've you know definitely been dumping a lot more resources and paying a lot more attention to closing the gap between uh, themselves and some of the other kind of more powerful actors that you mentioned. Um, and it makes a lot of sense because I think the Iranians know 
even for all their bluster, that they stand no chance of going toe-to-toe with the United States in a more conventional military conflict. And so it makes sense to go down these asymmetric routes um, to, to pour money um, and, and training and equipment uh, into the kind of irregular warfare uh, type of uh, conflict that we've already seen them you know, really pursue. How tough of a decision would it be for Tehran if it decided to conduct cyber warfare operations against the U.S. to not go too far? How delicate of a line do they have to walk when it comes to something like that in order to prevent an all-out U.S. attack? Yeah, again, it's it's one of those things where we don't know the threshold, right? We don't know um, what the U.S. thinks is, is too far. We've seen uh, the Iranians before uh, attempting to penetrate the networks of private sector companies, banks and elsewhere. Uh, they've uh, been caught going inside of a dam uh, a hydroelectric dam in upstate New York. Really, it's more of a, the, the equivalent of a weapons test. The, the point is to get in, see what they can do, you know, see how long they can stay in these networks before they're caught, um, and then to, to go back out and to kind of use that um, as a litmus, litmus test uh, for, you know, uh, conducting other types of cyber espionage or, you know, more offensive cyber attacks. How does the U.S. roll back Tehran's regional influence? Is that something that's even possible at this point? And what would it entail in order to do that? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm going to give you the kind of somewhat boilerplate and and boring response of it's got to be a whole-of-government approach, um, which I think, you know, has become somewhat of a cliche. But in this case, it's true. It can't just be about counterterrorism. It's got to be about uh, diplomacy. It's got to be about um, sanctions, which are in place. Um, And it's got to be about kind of finding some kind of logical end to this conflict, because at the current rate, um, we are going to see, um, you know, perhaps a, a broader war. Um, and that's something that I think, you know, it, it, it doesn't benefit the United States to get into another conflict in the Middle East. Um, and so certainly it's not something that would make the Mullahs more, more popular back in Tehran. And I think that's something to look at, too. Uh, there's a lot of dissent in Iran against the, the current current leadership. Do you think there's enough being done by the West to uh, exploit that and perhaps help the dissent, the opposition in Iran, gain greater control over the country? Well, I'd say, you know, there's probably a lot going on beneath the surface that we're not privy to. Um, In fact, I would suspect that's the case. And you you could see even this uh, past week with the announcement by the Iranians that they had uncovered a kind of, uh, you know, CIA human intelligence uh, network in the country. How true that is, it's again, we don't know. Um, whether these accusations are accurate or not. Um, But at the same time, you know, you have to look at kind of what the options are uh, and and, and look across the board and select from those. We've mentioned Israel and and its obvious rivalry with Iran. Saudi Arabia is the other big rival for Iran in the Middle East. And the ongoing conflict in Yemen has been something that Iran has really seemed to have exploited uh, by aiding the Houthi rebels How critical is that rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran and what's going on right now uh, along the Strait of Hormuz? Yeah, I mean, I think it's driving a lot of the the smaller conflicts in the region, right, and giving life to uh, to wars, particularly brutal wars like the one in Yemen uh, that might otherwise uh, have, have found a solution by now. But again, you know, for as much as in the United States we talk about Iran, um, in adversarial terms, we also have to take a hard look at what our so-called ally, the, the Saudis, are doing, right? Because uh, they're, they're no angels, right? The, what 
the, the Saudis and the UAE have done in Yemen and elsewhere um, has really kind of fueled the fire of a lot of sectarian conflicts in the region. Um, and, and, you know, in the long run, this is going to be uh, worse, I think, for the United States regional position. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about rising tensions between the U.S. and Iran with Colin Clark, Senior Research Fellow with the Sufan Center. How critical is the Shia-Sunni divide for Iran's regional playbook? I think the important part is when we talk about sectarianism is to talk about it in terms of identity politics, right? Because that's something that uh, is making a resurgence across the globe, not only in the Middle East, but in places like South Asia. Um, Our uh, research report prior to the one on Iran looked at al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent and the role that sectarianism and identity politics play throughout India, Pakistan, um, and elsewhere. And so I think, um, you know, identity politics have been seized upon by populist politicians in Europe, uh, but also by kind of militia commanders uh, in and around the Middle East. And, and it's a very powerful recruiting tool. Um, this sense of identity, this us versus them uh, paradigm, I think, has been really an effective way uh, to, to recruit militia fighters and, and terrorists and to push individuals over that threshold into committing acts of political violence. Is that something that uh, I- Iran might be biting off more than it could chew if it angers enough of the Sunni population in the Middle East and perhaps it'll backfire on its wishes to uh, pre- you know, present a bigger roadblock to Saudi Arabia, Israel and the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's the potential for blowback, right? And I think that's, uh, you know, if the Middle East had a bumper sticker, that, that could be one of them, right? These kind of second and third order effects that, uh, while it may make sense to take an action uh, in the short term, a tactical action, strategically, these things sometimes backfire. And so that, that, that's certainly a possibility. When we're talking about Syria, Iran has worked pretty closely with Russia. Russia has been pretty quiet about what's going on right now in the Strait of Hormuz with the tanker seizures, the drones knocked out of the air. Where do you think Russia would sit if there was a conflict between the U.S. and Iran? And and if Russia did side with Iran, what, what kind of help do you think it would give them? I would expect the usual, which is kind of weapon shipments, possibly what support the Russians have been giving all along. Right. And kind of training alongside Lebanese Hezbollah and Syria uh, and, and IRGC Quds Force uh, members. Right. And so that kind of tacit knowledge transfer that's been building up. Right. And, and it has a cumulative effect. And so we may very well see a qualitative difference um, in, in the way the Iranians fight, given kind of some of the things that they've been learning over the past several years in a real live battlefield laboratory. That is the Syrian civil war. It seems that Iran wants to avoid a military confrontation with the U.S. The U.S. obviously the biggest superpower in the world, but Iran has a pretty decent military itself, especially its ballistic missile inventory. How powerful are Iran's ballistic missiles and and what kind of damage would they do in the region and what kind of reach would they have? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a wild card, right? So Iran's development of ballistic missiles um, is really to deter any attacks on the homeland, but it's also to make their uh, allies and proxies um, as effective as possible, right? And so um, I think it's a huge threat to, to the region, um, and not only ballistic, uh, short-range ballistic missiles, but also kind of artillery rockets and mortars. Um, you know, and we've seen just how effective uh, Iranian training can be when you look at the way that some of the Shia militias in Iraq have operated and how they've improved um, over time. Is there concern that Iran will export its 
military technology to other players? I mean, they've tried to with Hezbollah. Israel seems to intervene when they can in Syria. But how big of a concern is this for the world? Yeah, I mean, there's been purported transfers of short-range ballistic missiles to to Qatar Hezbollah, KH, um, you know, indicating that Iran sees its Iraqi proxies as a means to project pro- uh, power in the broader region. So that that has happened in the past. It's happening now, and I don't expect it to stop any time in the future. I mean, if you look back at, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq and how many U.S. soldiers were actually killed in battle in Iraq from IEDs that were known as explosively foreign penetrators or EFPs that were either made in Iran or the technical know-how came from Iran. So there's a lot of American blood on Iranian hands. Um, and, and again, you know, operating so close to Tehran. One of the goals is for uh, the Iranians to push the Americans out of the region, uh, you know, overall. And I think that's one of their ways of doing it. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps has been lauded for some time as a feared force in Iran. Do we know just how well-trained and motivated the IRGC is? I think very well-trained and very motivated. And, you know, it would be a, a huge mistake to underestimate the capability uh, of this group. You know, this is, uh, this is uh, you know, uh, essentially running a state within a state in Iran. Um, has the resources necessary. Um, and if you look at uh, Qasem Soleimani uh, and, and some of the other leaders, uh, you know, these are guys that are strategic thinkers and they've been, you know, you know dealing with this region for a lot longer than we have. Uh, and they know the terrain a lot better than we do. President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear accord a year ago. Uh, here we are right now. What do you think needs to happen in order for cooler heads to prevail and a hot conflict to be prevented? Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's something I think about all the time. Um, I think you know the rhetoric certainly needs to be toned down, um, but I think you know one of the the linchpins right now to stability in the region or to at least preventing some kind of further conflagration is the role of uh, of Europe, right? And so, what can the Europeans do um, to to help cooler heads prevail and to kind of find or forge some workable solution that can get the U.S. and Iran to the table and and working toward uh, some kind of tacit agreement that both sides find acceptable. Um, you know, someone had asked me recently to put a percentage on that. I think it's a fool's errand, quite frankly. Uh, I always joke that I gave up making predictions about the Middle East a long time ago. Uh, it's, it's a very hard region to, even for folks that spend their life analyzing it and studying it, uh, to predict. And so, but but I do see the role of uh, the, the EU right now um, as as probably more important than ever. And so. Just like everyone else, I'm watching and waiting and kind of closely monitoring events as they play out on a daily basis. Colin, given the change in EU leadership and also leadership in key EU countries such as the UK, Germany, uh, does that add concern that perhaps the European nations won't have the leadership necessary to come to a deal with Iran? Yeah, it's possible, right? Um, you know, certainly uh, with shifting leadership. Um, there are going to be new agendas, new agendas and new priorities, and those priorities might, might not always align. Um, and, and, you know, the flip side of that is if in 2020 uh, a new uh, American administration takes place, does that provide more hope uh, for, you know, some kind of a negotiated political settlement? Um, again, these are all, you know, the, the million-dollar questions that most folks are attempting to answer. Um, and I think the real fear is that between now and then, uh, you know, something goes awry that leads to a, a conflict that many people don't want, but but won't, 
you know, likely will not be able to stop. It seems like a very high stakes game of chicken that so far, I think in the minds of a lot of people, it's fairly amazing that they have not run into each other yet. No question. Colin, thank you very much again for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Happy to. Thanks for having me. We've been joined by Colin Clark, Senior Research Fellow with the Sufan Center and author of After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Terrorist Diaspora. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.